Pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. The Old Testament lesson this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 17. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages, as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Oreb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We turn from the story of the nation of Israel being fed uh, in the wilderness to the second chapter of Philippians uh, and Paul's story of emptying and filling. Most people believe that this passage that we will read today contains some of the most oldest, some of the oldest um, language and text in all of the New Testament, most likely an ancient hymn sung by early Christians. So listen now to Paul's word to the church from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 13. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence. 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the movie is actually pretty old now. I hate to admit that because it came out the same year that I graduated from college. But even if this movie is 30 years old, it still numbers among my all-time favorites. And there is one scene in particular that has never left my imagination. The movie is City Slickers. And it tells the story of three middle-aged men who are all going through painful transitions of one kind or another. The main character, Mitch, who's played by Billy Crystal, is by all accounts a decent guy, but he is lost. He's floundering at work, he's barely present at home, and like his two childhood friends, he is in the grips of a full-blown midlife crisis. And the three of them decide to clear their heads with a trip out west, to spend a few weeks at a ranch that specializes in giving city folks a realistic cattle driving experience. Somehow in the fresh air under the big western skies, the three cowboy tourists hope that they might be able to make some sense of lives that were just not turning out the way that they had hoped that they would. Their trail boss on the trip is Curly, a crusty, tough, and ornery ranch hand played by Hollywood tough guy Jack Palance. At one point along the trail, Mitch and Curly are riding and talking alone together. As Mitch laments about his problems, Curly cuts him off. How old are you, 38? 39, Mitch answers. Curly gives him a knowing nod. Y'all come up here about the same time with the same problems, he says. You spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, and you think two weeks up here will untie them for you. None of you get it. Then Curly stops his horse, and he looks directly at Mitch. Do you know what the secret of life is, he asks. And then answering his own question, Curly holds up one finger. This, he says, one thing, just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean squat. He didn't really say squat, but you get the picture. That's great, Mitch says, but what is the one thing? Curly drops his finger and he points it directly at Mitch and says, that's what you have to figure out. Now, the way I read Paul's letter to the Philippians, he seems to be pointing a similar finger at the church. It was a finger pointed not in blame or anger, but in love and affection and certainly with hope. This was the great hope of Paul for the people of Philippi and the church in Philippi, that they would figure out what was the most important thing to them, that one thing that could bring everything together 
and clarify their problems and make them realize that all the little stuff that had been tripping them up was really not worth squat. Now, make no mistake, Paul knows what his one thing is. He knows well what is most important to him, and he reveals that one thing later in the letter. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him, Paul writes in the third chapter of Philippians. Whatever else may be in my life, he continues, whatever gains I had, I see now that all that stuff is lost, lost because of Christ. It is refuse. It is trash. It is not relevant. All that stuff, Paul said, I once bragged about or worried about or pontificated about didn't mean squat to Paul. It had all fallen away around the one thing that now gave meaning to Paul's life, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. But Paul doesn't wait until the third chapter to point his readers there. He does not bury the lead. After some introductory language in his letter, he gets right to what he wants most for Philippi. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, he writes. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That, as Paul saw it, was the one treasure Philippi needed to find, the one truth Philippi needed to accept, the one thing Philippi needed to figure out. Now, if I had been a Philippian Christian and I had been one of the recipients of that letter, and Paul had told me that the one thing I really needed was to have the mind of Christ in me, then I think my reaction would have been, yeah, I see that, I get that, but how exactly do I do that? My wife and I have a recurring joke that pops up every football season. It started one Sunday afternoon a long time ago. And the team on offense had called a timeout. They were down five points with not much time left on the clock. The opposing defense had shut them down pretty much all day. And as the camera panned to the deliberation of the coaches on the sideline, the TV commentators were speculating on what kind of play they would call next. Now, my wife knows football, so I asked her, what kind of play did she think they should run? And without a beat, she deadpanned this answer. I think they should call the touchdown play. And you know what? She was exactly right. That was exactly the play that they needed to run, the play that would guarantee the scoring of a touchdown. And I know that that's what those coaches were all looking for. But let's just say that the answer didn't really move the ball in their deliberations. And that pun is very much intended. In a way, it feels like the answer that Paul offers to the Philippians is a touchdown play kind of an answer. It's almost like a joke. 
You want to know the meaning of life? Be like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Act like Jesus. If we knew how to do that, would we not already be spiking the spiritual ball in the end zone of faith? The game would be over. No, it doesn't take much to figure out that being Christ-like in all ways is our end goal. What we struggle with is how to get there. That, I think, is the real finger Paul is holding up. That is what we have to figure out. We know intuitively that it is a good thing to share the mind of Christ, but how do we reach that point? The first place I think people tend to look when facing a thorny or confusing question like this is behavior. That's where we go first. What can I do right now? It's the way we tend to approach all kinds of vexing problems. Challenges that seem so huge we have no idea how to start. A good example from recent history is race relations. How do we as Christians, as the church, change our flawed and limited minds on race and privilege and injustice that is harming so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we melt our own hardened hearts? How do we change the way that we see the tears of the brokenhearted? How we hear the cries of the oppressed? How we lay our hands on the hurts of the world? We've tried some things. We've found some things to do. Read a book and talk about it. Attend a Zoom meeting and talk about it and listen to others. Attend a march and take some actual steps with others. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So I expect the Philippians went first to ethics. What behaviors will lead me to the mind of Christ? Or, in other words, what would Jesus do? Now, it's not a bad question. In fact, Paul is right there with them if that was their first thought. Paul actually gives them some ethical hints. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, he says, but do this. In humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but instead to the interests of others. In other words, in the things you do, practice humility. Work at helping others first and deferring your own needs and wants from time to time. Paul was actually a big believer in imitation as a method of spiritual growth. He saw it as a good way to train new disciples. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, he told the Corinthian church. And he told the very same thing to the Philippians. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example that you have in us. But that was just the beginning for Paul. Imitation of Paul and his fellow ministers was only a first step. Think about a parrot. A parrot can mimic things that we say, but a parrot does not understand why we say, I love you. 
A parrot cannot detect gentleness in our voice or hear anxiety in our words. A parrot cannot interpret a pained look on a face. To have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus is to do more than parrot Christ's actions. A parrot cannot struggle to forgive the thoughtless acts of another or wrestle with the challenge of looking first to the interests of others. A parrot could never ponder the mystery of a God who refused to claim power and authority for his own defense or his own needs, but who instead empties himself completely in the name of love, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Being part of that kind of love takes a lot more than mimicry. As Christian author, pastor, and professor Craig Barnes has said, Christians do not imitate the Savior's life. They participate in it. And as lofty as that sounds, it is far from a touchdown play kind of a calling. It just prompts us to go beyond imitation, to dig deeper and go higher and seek better. If what we really want is to be encouraged, if what we really want is consolation, if what we really want is love, if we really want to feel the power of the Holy Spirit in our bones and in our lives, if we really want to experience the deepest joys and the greatest highs of being disciples of Jesus Christ, then the one thing, the only thing, is to try our best to draw near to the mind of Christ and to share it with one another, to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I think it's the tallest mountain we could possibly hope to climb. It is a narrow gate that few find and even fewer pass through. And it is a calling that, as Paul says, can only be worked out with fear and trembling. But it is with the greatest hope and the assurance that God is with us, at work in us every step of the way, that the wise, experienced, and well-traveled Paul points to the men and women of Philippi and directs them down the trail. Holding up a single finger, he reveals the one thing that they should seek, to know and share the mind of Christ. How we commit ourselves to this quest, how we open ourselves to God to allow the Holy Spirit to get to work in us, how we go beyond simple imitation and begin to delve into the very mind of Christ, that is what we need to figure out. Because everything else we think we are doing as disciples, everything else we think we are doing as a church, doesn't mean squat.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.